Oh, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Luke tonight, chapter 8. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. And let's talk to our dad. Father, we come as your children. Some are coming as inquirers, seekers, not certain of their relationship with you. Lord, we are confident that you are able to meet every need. We are confident, Lord, in your promise. Whether we feel it or not is really irrelevant. You said you'd never leave us or forsake us. You said where two or three gather in the name of Jesus, that he'd be there in our midst. And we look tonight, Father, for that promise to be fulfilled. And we pray, Father, that as we consider the life of Jesus Christ, as he ministered upon this earth, Jesus, the very focus and essence of our lives, that our relationship with him would sweeten and would deepen we pray, Father, that you would give to us a greater capacity for spiritual things, a deeper hunger, and Lord, help us to understand the impact of that truth, that to him who has been given, more will be given. Lord, help us to use what we have, lest we lose that which you have given. Help us to hear, Lord, with new ears, I pray that you'd break the callousness that sometimes develops upon our hearts. And may these things be as a brand new story to us. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis is somebody that I would highly recommend to anyone who would like to sort of follow a historic defense for the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant scholar from England. You may have seen the movie Shadowlands. It was a story about C.S. Lewis, one of the few movies that had any uh, really credibility and depth to it of late. C.S. Lewis was an agnostic, a scholar who turned to be a Christian. And he wrote several books Many that I have greatly enjoyed, one of course is the Screwtape Letters. I love the analogy that he drew, though it was frightening at times to read, but it's very informative. A classic is his book, Mere Christianity, which he gives a defense for the Christian gospel. C.S. Lewis was brilliant in his logic, flawless really in his logic. And he boiled down the claims of Christ to three possibilities. He basically said in one of his writings, he said, you know, you can say a lot of things about Jesus Christ, but one option that is not open for you to say is that he was just a good person or a fine teacher. He said, this is C.S. Lewis, you can call him the devil of hell, a madman on the level of a poached egg, or he is the Lord of heaven and earth. There is no other option. You cannot say Jesus was simply one of many teachers, a very nice man, and we'll pat him on the little back and say, that was a nice thing you said, Jesus. That was good. You're a fine teacher. He says there's no room for that. And his logic was, was flawless. He said, given what Jesus said about himself, given the claims of Jesus Christ, no other option is open except, one, he is a liar, two, he is a lunatic, or three, he is the Lord. And it makes perfect sense. Jesus said incredible things, magnanimous things about himself. He said, for instance, I and I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. I am the resurrection and the life. If any man believes in me, though he were dead, he will always live. If a political figure got on television, the President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, the Governor of the State, and you're tuning in to CNN and he comes on and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one gets to God except through me. If you believe in me, you'll always live. You know, he went on like that. You go, ah, he's like one taco short of a combo plate. He's not all there. He's nuts. It's called being a megalomaniac in psychiatric or psychological terms. It's somebody who believes something more grandiose about himself than is possible. Jesus said, I and my Father are one and the same. He claimed equality with God. If you do not believe, he said, that I am, you will die in your sins. He made such incredible claims that either, A, they were right or wrong, according to C.S. Lewis. Either Jesus knew his claims were right and, or he knew his claims were wrong. They were right or wrong. There's only two options. It's right or it's wrong. It's not sort of right, sort of wrong. It's right or wrong. Let's presuppose that the claims of Jesus Christ were wrong, that all the things he said about himself were untrue. Then there are two options on that side. A, he knew they were right, or he didn't know they were right. I'm sorry. Let's say they were wrong. My logic is not flawless. Two options. He knew they were wrong, or he didn't. Let's say what Jesus claimed about himself was wrong, and he knew what he was saying was wrong. What does that make him? A liar. He's deliberately misleading people. Let's say he said all these things, he was wrong, but he really thought he was right. He didn't know he was wrong. It makes him nuts. Now, I don't want to follow somebody like that or say, yeah, he's a good guy. Somebody who made the depth of the claims Jesus made can't just be that. The other option, according to C.S. Lewis, is that he was right, and he's the Lord of the universe, and if he is right about what he said, your position to him must differ. Either you will believe and cling to him tenaciously, or you will reject him. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Jesus Christ is God. He is God in human flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. One of the strong, most important tenets of Christianity is that Jesus is God. That's why he said, if you do not believe that ego emi, I am, that I am, you will die in your sins. Now there are groups that attack that and don't believe that. The Jehovah Witnesses have problems with the idea that Jesus is God. That is why I have problems with the Jehovah Witnesses. Because they deny something very basic to the scripture. It is not an option. It is basic. Jesus is God. They will say, no, Jesus wasn't God. He was, of course, a very highly created being by God, the first of God's creation. And then God used Jesus, his created being, to create other things. But Jesus is not God. And I always like to point out to them the first verse, the second verse of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him there was nothing made that was made. They'll say, well now, according to the Greek, it really says that Jesus was a God. Oh, really? Now, all this time, you've been telling me that there's only one God, and now you've got two. You've got God and a God, and now you've got more problems than you began with. It comes from a misunderstanding, a deliberate misunderstanding of its founders, and now a misunderstanding of the text itself as they come to your door and they quote it to you. They misunderstand the Greek text. NRK ain halagas, in the beginning was the word. Kai halagas ain prostantheon. And then it says, Kai theos halagas. Now, 
literally, that last part is, and God, Theos, was the Word. The Jehovah Witnesses, usually you lose them at that point. And you might lose a lot of people. I don't want to lose you at this point. But they will say, if they have read their material, that their false teachers have told them. They'll say, well, there's not an article before God in that last part. God, often in the Greek, is ha-theos, literally the God. And so they say, it should be ha-theos kai-halagos. The word was the God. Except they have a basic misunderstanding. In English, we always put the predicate last, right? In Greek, the predicate is always first for emphasis. And so you leave out the article ha, and it's just literally God was the word. The idea is that this word was the very God himself. The absence of the article emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ was, is, and will always be God. Jesus proved that he was God by what he did. And in this chapter, chapter 8, it's a wonderful display of God manifest in the flesh. He triumphs over disease. He triumphs over disturbances in nature. And he triumphs over death. And only God can do that. The last enemy, the Bible says, is death. And Jesus faces all of these enemies successfully, showing that he is the Lord over all. Now, last week when we were doing our study, we ended, I think, with the parable of the sower and the seed. And Jesus gave many parables. He spoke word pictures to people so that when they heard the word picture, they could place the word picture alongside the theological truth. And the theological truth, which is often abstract, is made more lucid. It's clearer because we have a word picture to compare it with. And so he spoke about four types of hearts by speaking about four types of soils. And the response of the different hearts to the word of God as God would sow them, or as the Son of Man would sow the seed of the word of God into the hearts of men. The disciples didn't understand the parables at first. Jesus did explain it to them privately. They came and they asked him, yeah, what did you mean out there? And he gives them the explanation which we covered last week. But Jesus said that parables have two basic reasons for their being given. Number one, it's to reveal truth. To reveal truth to the hungry heart. There are those who are excited about truth. There are those who want to learn everything they can about God's revelation. A story will provide a window into that truth and it will excite them. They'll become all excited about, oh, I get it, I see the analogy. That makes sense, now I get it. Even as when you are giving a message or you're giving a lecture to anyone, you who do public speaking, as you give information, when you insert a story, you see the crowd sit up and you'll get eye contact. There's a switch that happens. Because you're touching a nerve. We like to be right-brained when we listen. Jesus did that often. And so it was to reveal truth to the heart that was interested. But also, Jesus said, it was to conceal the truth. Because Jesus spoke to a mixed multitude, a mixed group. There were people who really wanted to understand what he said. There were a lot of people who tried to trap him in his words. Let's see what he says. Let's find a loophole. Let's can him. So, to those people who were not interested in truth, their eyes would be even more blind. They would go, huh? Well, why did he say that cute little story? What does that have to do with anything? And so Jesus said, quoting Isaiah chapter 6, referring to the hardened hearts of Israel, he uses it for them, in, uh, in verse 10, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. You versus they. To you it has been given to know the mysterion, mysteries. Now when you think of mystery, you think of a novel that 
is shrouded in mystery and the plot unfolds and it's difficult to understand perhaps at first. The idea of musterion, mysteries that Jesus refers to, is simply this. They were concealed in the Old Testament, but they are now revealed. There's no mystery to it anymore. It's not like some secret knowledge that only few can attain to, like the Gnostics went on to say. The idea is that God spoke in times past, and we didn't understand everything he was talking about. The kingdom of God was not completely unfolded to Old Testament saints. But to you, it has been given to understand that which was once concealed, it is now revealed. So you can plainly understand it. But to them, it is not. See? The difference between you and they. Seeing, they may not see. and Hearing, they may not understand. The truth in a parable will awaken one and will harden another. It's like the sun, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. It depends on the condition of the substance itself. So if your heart is softened, your heart will be melted by the story and you'll have a fluid understanding of it. If your heart is hardened, it will just stiffen up like hard clay. So the purpose of the parables, and I'm kind of giving you a little bit of what we talked about last week as we get into the parables uh, this evening. So you might look at it this way. Parables are either A, the words of a master teacher, or B, the sentence of a holy judge. Depends on the condition of your heart. And so he gave them that people might understand who were truly following him. Now, he speaks about the parable of the revealed light. In verse 16, no one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. Therefore take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, or what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Parables enlighten, or parables darken. Like a lamp, when you go into a room in an ancient Middle Eastern home, it shows everything that is there. It provides a purpose. The light expels the darkness. The light shows you the way in which to go. Even as spiritual light or truth, the light that comes through the ears and into the heart, as you hear and pick up on spiritual enlightenment, that light is meant to show your way out of darkness to give you direction for your life. And then you are responsible for what you hear, for the light that you have received. It's to give you direction in your path, light to your way, a lamp to your path. And when you light a lamp, everything is revealed. You know, it's, it's interesting. You, can, you always look better in dim light. That's why in very fancy places, they get the lights just so. A certain Kelvin temperature of the lamp, uh, an incandescent bulb versus a uh, uh, fluorescent bulb. The color's just right. Dim it a little bit. And you look in the mirror with the right color on, you go, hey. <laughs> Pretty nice. Get closer and turn the lamps on very bright or put a fluorescent light the different temperature of light. And it's a whole different ballgame. But basically, light reveals the truth, re reveals all about your life. And that was one of the problems, of course, that people had with Jesus. He revealed them by the parable. He revealed their hearts. Uh, and so he says, take heed how you hear. A parable at first is a picture. It paints a picture. It helps us understand. A parable becomes a mirror. It goes from a picture to a mirror. You go, oh, that's a cute little story. Oh, yeah, I understand. But the more you listen to it, you see yourself. And that is one of the reasons the Pharisees and the scribes hated Jesus in some of his parables because they kind of understood that he was speaking about them and it really ticked them off. It revealed them. And they didn't like being revealed. They didn't like what they saw. But then the parable, if you look for the right reason, becomes a window 
into the grace and mercy of God to change your heart. It just depends who you are. And so, take heed, Jesus said. Therefore, take heed how you hear, for whoever has to him more will be given. Whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken away. Folks, it is very important that we do not become an audience, but we become disciples. There is a difference between an audience and disciples. James put it this way, be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest you deceive yourselves. An audience simply listens. A disciple does. An audience is deceived because spiritual truth is revealed and it basically goes in one ear, out the other ear, it's over with, I go on, but a disciple hears that he might do. That's why Jesus said, be very careful, take heed how, not just what, but how you hear. It could be that for some of you who have not felt close to the Lord for some time, you wonder, how come my quiet times haven't been the same? How come God hasn't revealed anything new to me? Because you haven't kept what he revealed to you a long time ago. He gives you truth. You're responsible for that truth. To him that has, more will be given. The revelations will come. God will reveal his word, his will, his heart. It becomes so exciting. But to harden your heart and disobey what you hear puts a callus over your heart. The Bible seems so dry. I'll tell you what, I'd recommend, though you probably wouldn't hear many preachers doing this, listen to less and listen more carefully. Be selective. I don't think it's important that you have your, necessarily, your radio blasting all day with every conceivable Bible teacher in the world and your television all the time and just letting it just run all the way out. That's, that's going to be, that'll be great. I'll just let all this stuff run. You're responsible for what you hear. I'd rather be selective and listen more carefully. The devil does not mind your knowledge of the Bible. He minds your doing the Bible. All the academics in the world, all the seminary, he didn't mind that at all. Because he knows that you can deceive yourself by just academic knowledge without taking the responsibility to do it. What an important exhortation to take heed or be careful how you hear. For whoever has to him more will be given. Whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken away from him. So you might want to ask yourself, is there anything in your life that is prohibiting you? Any idol, any relationship that you're just kind of saying, God, I've given you my life and I kind of want to follow you, but, you know, there's this little closet I have over here, a bunch of junk, sins, you know, things I like to do, and I just, just leave it alone, would you? I've given you, uh, you know, up to a certain point, free reign, but, but bug off on this little area. I just want, a, I just want a couple of cool sins. Get rid of them for your own sake, for the happiness of your soul. I heard a story that when the gospel first went to the African continent, as it was making inroads to the various villages, the men of the villages were taught to get up early before the rising of the sun while their families were still asleep in their tents and in their huts. And for the men to get up and pray on behalf of their family, to have quiet time alone before God out in the jungles. That they should get up and assemble as a group in the midst of the town, and then they would spread out one by one out into the jungles. Much of Africa has savanna, the grasslands of Africa. They just grass that grows up naturally, especially uh, in the very mild climates. It's everywhere. And if you walk on the same path, you will wear down the grass and you can see little roads that go from the village out to that place where that elder, that man, was having his quiet time. But of course, in such a condition, you could also tell if the guy was slacking off in his devotions. You'd look at his path and you'd see grass growing back up. You'd see another path and it was perfectly clean, just dirt. You know, this guy's been out every day. And so they would gently remind each other Instead of saying, have you been spending time with God? They would simply say, grass, is, grass has been growing in your path, brother. 
Is there grass in your path? Are there weeds in the way? Is your path not clear this evening in your relationship with God? Is there something that you have not been obeying as God has been speaking to your heart? Be determined to be a doer, not just a hearer, because James says you will deceive yourselves. Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. Now, isn't that interesting? The mother of Jesus couldn't get close enough to Jesus. I was always taught she could. I was always taught that Jesus is a busy man. And if you want an effective prayer life, don't go to Jesus. Go to his mother. Because, after all, any son will listen to his mother. So go to Jesus' mother, talk to her about it, then she'll go put in a good word for you to Jesus. Here, she can't get through. In fact, listen to his response. It was told by some who said, Your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he answered to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Wow. You've got two families, you know that? You've got a physical family. Thank God for them. You wouldn't be here otherwise. Jesus seems to indicate that the deepest possible relationship is a spiritual family. And I have found that to be true. I love my family dearly. But I've got to say, the greatest, most enriching times I have ever had have been with my spiritual family. Now, Jesus sort of sets the record straight. We're all on the same level. She's not better than anybody else. My brothers here are coming. They're not any better. It's that spiritual level. And I love that. There's no room for celebrities in the kingdom of God. The only reason tonight I am elevated on this stage is simply because for line of sight, I would prefer it that I could just have this stool on the ground, but people in the back wouldn't be able to see as well. But in the true sense, there is none higher than anybody else. We are on exactly the same level before God. I am your brother. You don't have to come to me to get to God. Nor are my prayers of any greater avail than your prayers. Nor is Billy Graham's prayer or any other spiritual leader's prayers any, any greater. And God doesn't listen to one more readily. If you try to get through to God and you pray, God won't say, Well, you know, would you come back in about an hour? i got Billy Graham praying right now. He's really important. He will listen to you instantly. You have an access before the throne of heaven because if you're a believer, you've been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you know if you're in the same family? By obeying. I want you to notice there's a repetition of idea here. Jesus, in the first parable, is speaking about hearing and doing. And here, once again, he emphasizes obedience. Back in verse uh, 10. Seeing they may not see and hearing... They may not understand. Verse 12, those by the wayside are those who hear. Verse 13, those ones on the rock are those who when they hear. Verse 14, when they have heard. Verse 15, who having heard the word with a noble heart and a good heart, then he says, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And then he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. How do you know if you're part of God's family? Because you hear and you do. And if you do not hear and do, you are not. And that is written all over the Bible. There's no way to get around that. When I was a boy, my father required that I obey him. And he has all sorts of ways to enforce that rule very creative ways. But he never required me to obey the parents of the neighbor kids. If they said, Skip, I want you to do this, it might be unreasonable. My dad never required that I obey them, but he required that I obey my father because he was my dad. And God requires, if you're part of his family, that you obey him. 
Who am I, who's my mother or my brothers? Those in the spiritual family are those who keep the, hear the word of God and they do it. I wonder how his mother felt about that. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Now that is a statement and a promise. Remember that. Let's go over to the other side. And they launched out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in jeopardy. They came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Now, I think at this point, the disciples felt pretty, pretty good because they, uh, they felt probably like they had graduated from the university of faith. You know, Jesus said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And, you know, knowing Peter and just knowing the profile of some of the disciples, they go, hey, to us, you see, we're insiders. We're spiritual guys. To us it's been given to know. They felt like they had graduated magna cum laude with a master's degree in faith. However, they hadn't passed their final exam. Faith must always be tested. <laughs> They're about to have a test. Oh, listen, you can talk about faith and write term papers on faith in seminary and talk about the Greek word for faith and how it's used here and there, but when it really counts is when you're going through a storm. And if you listen to the promises of Jesus Christ in the midst of that storm. So he goes, says, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Now, I got a feel for these guys because I have been on the Sea of Galilee in mostly calm waters, though I've been there in some pretty choppy waters. There was one occasion, not on the Sea of Galilee, I was traveling through Europe and I was crossing the English Channel by boat and the weather was horrendous, the waves were high and the boats rocking back and forth and many people aboard were getting sick. And it's always embarrassing for a stalwart Britisher to get sick in public. It's, it's like the most embarrassing thing possible to them. They like to be so controlled and so contained and... And uh, I watched <laughs> as fashionable ladies dressed in furs were hanging their heads over the decks of, those boat, of that boat, making all those noises and losing them. <laughs> and I thought of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee being tossed to and fro, and not only were they probably getting physically sick, but they were getting desperate. Now, Jesus told them, let's go over. They thought they were going under. They didn't listen to Jesus. He gave them a statement and a promise. We're going to go over to the other side. And when Jesus tells you you're going over, you ain't going under. Especially with him on board. Jesus wasn't worried. He was sawing logs. He was perfectly happy, content. He had it under control. But they looked at the waves and they seemed so ominous, so big. We're going under. Better wake up Jesus. When we go to Israel, we like to start in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. Early one morning, we'll get up and we get on a boat. And they have two boats now in Tiberias that are modeled in exact replica, though twice the size, maybe better than twice, two and a half, three times the size of a boat that Jesus and his disciples would have sailed on. 2,000 years ago. So you're on the same kind of a boat, constructed the same kind of a way, looking the same kind of a way. We start in Tiberias and we go to the other side of the lake, all the way to Capernaum. It's kind of neat to be on a boat on that sea like that. Now we cheat a little bit. There's a motor on the boat. Get there pretty quickly. But we go out there and we shut the motor off. They'll put the sail up. They'll throw the nets out. We'll have a Bible study and we'll sing. And oftentimes it's calm. Usually it's calm when you start in the morning. But if you were at Capernaum, which is that northwest tip of the lake, and you're looking south down into the Sea of Galilee, if you were to look south where Tiberias is and off to the right, you would see the problem and why there would be winds. Especially when you recognize that you are standing at about 600 feet, 650 feet below sea level, and everywhere you look, the land rises. 
And everywhere you look, there are canyons that come in from the Mediterranean Sea, that come in from the Golan Heights. Virtually everywhere there's these canyons carved out by rivers, rivulets, or just that's the way God put them. And over on the right south, past the plain of Esdralon, there are two mountainous peaks that jet up. They're called the Horns of Hattin, where Saladin the Magnificent rallied his troops when he fought against Israel. And those horns are huge cliffs that go up that funnel wind like a venturi in a carburetor from the Mediterranean Sea and from the Golan height areas around it and they just bring that wind in because you're above sea level going down sucks it into the Sea of Galilee. So you can get huge devastating storms. Boats have been wrecked. And I was over there one time with my tour gun. I said, okay, uh, have you ever seen like a real heavy storm? You go, oh yes. We've seen boats destroyed, taken out and waves coming, crashing onto the shore. So here you've got this, this interesting, it's a lake of Galilee. It's only 13 miles long uh, at its largest seven, eight miles wide. It's shaped like a harp, hence the term Hagalil, Galilee, the harp, the circle. But because you have this high plain that rises above and the Sea of Galilee, 650 feet below sea level, it just sucks the wind in and it can come instantly. You could be out there, it could be calm one minute and the winds come in and just churn things up, especially in the afternoon and the evening. So they're out there. Jesus said, we're going over. They thought they're going under and the storm is crashing upon them. Those waves are churning things up. They think, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're perishing. They came to him and said, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose, and this is an interesting word. He rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. I say it's interesting because it's the same word used in Matthew's gospel, chapter 17, of Jesus turning to a demon-possessed man and rebuking the demon. There could be something more here in this storm than meets the eye. It could be a natural storm or... It could be that he is rebuking the influence of Satan who perhaps is trying to hinder Jesus from going over to Gadara where there is a demon-possessed man in whom a legion, over 6,000 demons, have been living in him for quite some time. Could be. He rebuked, it says, the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm he said to them, here's a very <laughs> uh, deep question. Where is your faith? You who know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, you who have graduated magna cum laude from the school of faith, where is your faith? Now you want to really know where your faith is? Watch it during a storm. Your faith is not exhibited in a Bible study or on a lounge chair in the Caribbean. Though we all love places like that. Your faith is demonstrated in a storm. It's tested. Where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Before we move on, I just want to give you a word of encouragement. Next time you are facing a storm and your faith is being challenged... Know this, God brought you into that storm. God allowed you to go into that storm. You think this was a surprise to Jesus? He said, we're going over. He knew there was a storm coming. He was sleeping. He was aware of what was going on. God brought you to that storm. You should be able to take comfort in that. You may not like it, but you can take comfort in it. God brought you to that storm. You know that God does that? Do you think God owes you smooth sailing the rest of your life? If you do, you're really going to be a disgruntled believer. He doesn't, and he won't get it. But you can know that God never allows anything to touch you before he first peruses it. It goes through his hands. He approves it and says, here, I have a trial custom made just for you. Because I want you to grow. Now, if you don't want to grow at all, then seek, like the Epicureans, to have a life free of pain. If you want to grow, allow your faith to be tested and cooperate with God. 
The children of Israel were leaving Egypt and they were going out in the desert and God gave them specific directions where to go. They seemed very illogical because God had seen brought them into a trap, brought them to the front where there was the, the sea, Red Sea in front of them. Uh, to the right, there was a, a mountainous chain that he, they couldn't cover and another set of mountains and vast desert. And so uh, the only way they could go is maybe backwards and go around, except when they looked back, there was the Egyptian army ready to pounce on them. They were in a trap. And God brought them deliberately to that trap. You know why? Because God wanted to show them that God had resources they knew nothing about. They looked and said, this is impossible. We can't go over the sea. We can't go over the mountains. And now we're going to die. And so they complained to Moses, what have you done? You brought us out here to kick the bucket? And so Moses starts praying and God says, what are you praying to me for? Lift your rod. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. And God opened the sea. He made a way where there was no way. You're in a storm. There's no way out. God can make a way where you can't find one. God, why have you brought me here? Stand still. See the salvation of God. Job was another one who questioned God. And you know, I tell you, Job is a comfort to me. It should be a comfort to you if you or your loved ones are facing a difficult time this evening. Job himself wondered at the wisdom of God and he cried out and he said at one point, Oh, that I would know where I might find God, that I might approach his seat, that I might fill my mouth with arguments and come before the Lord. I go forward and he is not there. I look backwards and behold, he is not there to the right and to the left and I can't find him. And you know what he said after that? But he knows the way that I take. I don't know where God is, but that's irrelevant. God knows where I am. You often ask that in a trial. Where's God? It's, it's irrelevant. God knows where you are. Job said, God knows the way that I take, and when I am tested, I will come forth as gold. I love it. God knows where I am in the midst of this trial. Where's your faith? They were afraid and they marveled one another. Now we get to the, the next interesting setting of Jesus and the demon-possessed man. And they sailed to the countryside, the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. If you were at Capernaum, and I just uh, uh, kind of gave you a little bit of visual instructions, it's kind of northwest. And if you look down, you'd see Tiberias in front of you. The plain rises to the right. And off to the left, you would see a very sheer cliff on the eastern slope of the Sea of Galilee. Very sheer, sort of like when you look at the Sandias from this side versus the other side. The other side, they're sloped gradually. This side, they're cut sheer. The eastern side of the Sea of Galilee has a sheer drop-off. There's a, a very sharp mountain all along the eastern side. It's drier. It's a little higher elevated. And it was known as Gadara or Gerisa or the area of the Gadarenes. It was a city that was there. It's about uh, six miles from Capernaum by boat, straight through. So they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. He saw Jesus, he cried out, and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. For it often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. Demonization is common in the Bible. A lot of people ask about it. The Greek word is daimonizomai, and it literally means to be demonized. What that means is, is one or more demons invades a person and takes control over that person. It is not oppression. It is where Satan takes control of the motor functions of that person. Daimonizomai demonization, demon possession. Now, Satan can attack a believer in a number of ways. He can attack 
emotionally, causing doubt. He can attack spiritually, of course. That's one of his really his uh, most famous attacks through false doctrine. He can also attack physically, I believe. He can oppress a believer. And it seems that all three of those areas are difficult to separate. I think it's like a three-pronged attack. He gets one talent in and he gets the other two in as well. Seems to be all-inclusive usually. A Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. It is almost blasphemy, I think, to say that he can. It is certainly reflective of one who knows neither the nature of the devil nor the nature of holy God and the covenant that he makes with his church. I've seen, I believe, truly demon-possessed people and what they can do, what they can exhibit. There seems to be, in some circles, an almost obsessive enjoyment in demon hunting. Demon, demon, who has the demon? Let's identify the demon, let's name him, let's have an extended conversation with him, and then we'll write books about what the demon says, and we'll publish it. What good is that? The devil's a liar. How can you believe anything a demon speaks? But there seems to be this obsessive enjoyment with, and, and so many Christians are on the demon craze. It's like, what a great tactic. The devil can raise, rave his arms around, wave them around, and get all of your attention and eyes on the devil and off Jesus Christ. We've talked at length about that. I don't want to really go through it uh, too much. Um, at the same time, don't underestimate the devil. I don't want to make him seem like he's just a benign uh, non-entity. Listen, he's been around 6,000 years or better, and he has studied human nature for at least that long. I think he's got some pretty clever tactics going on, don't you? Don't underestimate him, but don't overestimate him. He is not the opposite of God. He is a created being by God, and he will ultimately be destroyed by God. So this man is demon-possessed. And uh, he bows down. He cries out, what have I to do with you? Notice Jesus, son of the most high God. Isn't it interesting? Demons have faith. This demon knew who Jesus was. This demon did probably uh, an involuntarily obeisance to Jesus as he bowed down. He knew who Jesus was. He knew there was a coming judgment and a time of incarceration during the thousand years, as it says in the book of Revelation chapter 20. He knew all that. But he was still a demon. Now James brings this up and he says in James chapter 2 verse 19, Oh, you say you believe in God. Oh, bravo. The devils believe and tremble. In other words, there's a difference between knowing and believing that God exists, that Jesus exists, that he will do this and that and facts about him. There's a difference between that kind of faith and saving faith. Saving faith does something about what one realizes. This demon or these demons are only concerned with their temporary status. In another place, they said, have you come to torment us before the time? Because we know that Satan is bound for a thousand years uh, during the kingdom age. He's released, and then later on, he and all the demons are cast into the lake of fire. Jesus asked him what his name is, and he says, Legion, because many demons had entered him. During the time of Caesar Augustus, a legion was 6,826 men. That was comprised of 6,100 foot soldiers, and the rest were horsemen. So around 6,000. Now, we don't know if that's how many demons entered him. It could be that was his name, indicating there was a large number, a legion-like amount. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abuso, is the word, the bottomless pit which they will be consigned to one day. Now a herd of many swine was feeding on the mountain, and they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Now, now that's something very important, permit. The devil does not have sovereign reign. He cannot do anything without permission. Do you realize that? Job came, uh, Satan came to God in the book of Job appeared before God with the other angelic beings, the sons of God, appeared before him. Satan was among them. 
God said, where have you been lately, Satan? He said, cruising back and forth on the earth, going to and fro. God said, hey, if you looked at Job, my servant, he's perfect. He escheweth evil. Look at him. He's upright. He's blameless. Satan accused Job of being a mercenary, following God for only the temporal benefit. He said, well, look, you blessed him. You put a hedge about him. I mean, no, anybody would serve you, of course. But stretch your hand forth against him and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. God said, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only don't touch his physical person. I'll give you permission up to a certain point and no more. And as you read the text, he was unable to go beyond that. God has a tether on the devil. I've often wondered why he's given him any kind of tether at all any kind of rain at all, but we know that God uses it for his own purposes and allows the devil to do certain things in our lives under parameters, under limits, to bring God the greatest glory. It did in the book of Job. Job didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, but he did say, though God kills me, I'll still trust him. His eyes weren't on the devil. They were still on God through the whole book. So he asked him for permission, and he permitted them. And the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And of course, it's been said this is the first instance of deviled ham and the only one in the scripture. <laughs> the herd ran violently down the steep place, those cliffs that are on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. They went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed, and the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent them away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. The man was delivered from the demons. The demons wanted, as they tried with the man, to torment and to destroy his life as the demons were cast into 2,000 pigs. We know Jesus said, Satan comes not except to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And their lives were taken. They were destroyed. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's been uh, cited. It's an interesting aside. Pork is illegal in Israel. The raising of pigs was an illegal business. Now, it's true, Galilee was called Hagalil Hagoyim, the Galilee of the Gentiles, and it's supposed that perhaps these were Gentile uh, herdsmen raising pigs, and it was lawful. But it was unlawful in Israel, period. And it's some think that these were Jewish herders, and they were performing an illegal industry. And Jesus simply put to a stop an unlawful industry. They were afraid. They did not care about this man's deliverance. They didn't go, hey, praise the Lord. We don't care about our dumb pigs. We want this guy. We're just so glad he's delivered. Oh, thank you, Jesus. They said, uh, would you leave? I know people like that. They don't want Jesus around. They don't want him changing lives. Don't bother me. Don't mess around with my life. Don't mess around with my friends' lives. All I'm interested in is temporal economic benefit. If you can't give that to me, I'm not interested in you. And these people did a greater disservice than the demon. At least the demons worshipped him. Though it wasn't a true kind of worship, they did obeisance to him. These guys just wanted him out of their borders. But, like what is natural, the man from whom the demons departed begged him that he might be with him. You know, wouldn't you? You can't blame him. You've just been delivered from 6,000 demons. It's like, you know what? I'm going to stick with you. I'm not going to go anywhere else. You know, what you say is what I'll do, and where you go is where I'll go. I mean, I want to follow you. It's better than where I've been. I've been hanging out in graveyards, and you seem to empty them. So I'm going to follow you. 
As zealous as this man was, as notable as it was that he said this, Jesus indicated that he had to go back home and start at home. And I, I think there's something there. It's one thing to go to people you don't know and share the truth. It's another thing to share it at home where people know you. Your family, I think, is the toughest mission field on earth. They know you. I listen, you're, they think, what are you, who are you? You're not pulling a fast one on us. You're, you're that little kid that grew up in our house. I remember when I shared the gospel with my family. I shared first with my brother, Bob. I'm the youngest in my family. Bob is the next oldest. I was always his kid brother, punk brother. And I told him about Jesus. What are you? You're just a punk brother. Who? And then, of course, telling your parents. You're trying to tell us? We raised you in the church. Who are you? Very difficult with the family. But Jesus said, go back home. That's where it begins. Your testimony begins at home with your wife, with your parents, with your children. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city. Oh, he went home all right, but he didn't just didn't say a few words in his house. He went through the whole city and told what great things Jesus had done for him. Jesus Christ is in the business of changing lives. And everyone that he touched was provable. You could tell. The demon-possessed guy would walk around and go, you know, Jesus touched my life, and what if somebody said, well, prove it. Uh, talk to anybody who knew me before. When I was chained to that tombstone and ripped it out and ran around naked in, in the graveyards. Go ask people who knew me. You can always tell that Jesus touched life by the changes. Somebody says, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, prove it. You should be able to say, go talk to the people who knew me. Go talk, not to me, not to my Christian friends. Go talk to all the unbelievers around me who know me. They'll tell you I have changed. They'll tell you I'm not perfect either, but they'll tell you I'm a lot different than I used to be. Jesus Christ has changed my life. Are you changed? Has Jesus touched your life? Are you an audience or are you a disciple? Are you a hearer of the word or a doer of the word? Are you being deceived tonight? Maybe you need to really be selective on what you listen to in terms of spiritual truth. And forget the spiritual smorgasbord approach, but just listen to something that's good and solid. And as God reveals his truth to you, say, Lord, the light that I have received, I will act upon that I might be given more revelation. So, Father, tonight, we are now left with your truth, which is so gracious and so wonderful and so vast. And yes, we admit, so impossible to keep in and of ourselves apart from a work of your grace, apart from a touch of your spirit in our lives. How we delight in studying the Bible, Lord. It's, a, it's, it's such a, a great thing, a wonderful thing. Help us now, Lord to go beyond hearing and to get into that graduation level of doing. We admit, Father, that we have failed. We admit that we are sinners. I pray, Lord, that we will not walk away condemned, that we will walk away encouraged, because as the parables are a window of truth, they're a mirror of the way we really are. They're also a window into your grace and your forgiveness and your power. And, Lord, I pray that we will grow by admitting that we need you and we lay our lives before you tonight. I pray for anyone who's here tonight, Father, who has come and they're simply at this point part of an audience, but they are not yet a disciple. They are hearing but not doing. Lord, I pray that those would be lovingly convicted of sin and graciously drawn to you where they can experience fullness of joy and forgiveness of sins. As we're in a place of contemplation and consideration, meditation, as you're thinking about your life, as your life is now naked and bare before God, I very simply want to ask if there are any tonight that are among us that admit their need to surrender their life to Jesus Christ, to confess their sins 
to him to be born again. Some of you have come tonight and you are part of an audience, but you are not a disciple. Would you like to be a disciple? Jesus never forced anyone or pushed anyone, but he did invite them. He warned of the consequences, but he was always inviting. I want to invite you in his name to come and be his disciple. If you'd like to do that, I'd like you to raise your hand up right now. I'll acknowledge your hand and pray for you as we close this service. I'd like you to raise it up and keep it up. And let me pray for you. Anybody in this auditorium, raise your hand up. Say, Skip, I'm going to follow Jesus. I want to make a break with the past and follow him with all my heart. Raise your hand up. God bless you. Right up here. Anybody else? God bless you, ma'am. And you, ma'am, over here to my right, toward the back. And you, sir, over here to my left. Anybody else? Way in the back. I can see you through my telescope. I see you back there. Anybody else? Father, for, the, for these, and over here, we are so glad, 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 and over here.